0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kipalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist, projections. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kobakowski, and we don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but we're recording this during the Aseris HaMaitre, the Days of Repentance. Um, and it's a time that Jews throughout the world are involved in contemplation and thinking about how they can better their lives and also thinking about how kind of mess they made of their lives uh, as well. Um, and really, as we know, it's a time for chuba, a time for regretting, a time for committing, a time for standing up and saying you're not going to be that person that you were, or at least you're going to take steps to be slightly different than you were. In ways that have subtle but important ramifications, all mental and yet it's something that is fragile and is beyond so many of us and I think really, in this regard other you know i I really would like to present to you really the story of of one film, a film that I informed Yitzchak about, and he just viewed it, and I saw it last week and I said, this is a film that can be seen, not as a Jewish film, but I think touching very deeply about how one can change, how one can have God in their lives, how one can do a real tshuva. It it might not be the Rambam's definition of tshuva or of any onus, but I would say that a lot of disenfranchised and regular people and people that even are put together well can see this film and really ask themselves questions about about themselves and be entertained like this film and the film i'm talking about we'll talk about it together is the next voice you hear it's from 1950 um the the only thing that is prestigious when i'm going to tell you about the film well there's two and a half things prestigious and one isn't really wasn't prestigious at the time one thing was prestigious about it was that it was directed by William Wellman, who had been directing films from the sign later on, and a number of, of wonderful classics. And the producer was someone who was wielding a lot of power at the time. He was very well known, uh, Dory Sherry. Uh, that was the producer. And as we know from the book that he wrote about this film, of the making of this film, uh, we know that he was more than just, ah, okay, this is a, a project that I got. He was involved in this film uh, from, as we say in Hebrew, from Aleph to Toph. In fact, he wrote a book about this film at the making of this film um, that's available free for anybody who's interested in it. And again, the film from 1950 is um, the next voice you hear. It's a black and white film. And I said, those are the two prestigious things. the This very important producer, um, uh, Dory Sherry, and um, William Wellman. Who, of course, uh, had directed the original uh, *The Original uh, Star Is Born*, and really had been uh, involved in was the was the first I think one of the first uh, directors to win an Oscar because he was the director of *Wings*, which you know I think was the first year the Oscar was the half prestigious thing was the um, the female lead in this film. And at the time, she was really a bit player, very, very much a big player. This might have, been, I don't know how many tomes she made before this, but she hadn't been in many. Uh, she wasn't exactly a looker and she didn't really fit in. I mean, again, she was sort of like a, you know, uh, a Miss Plain Jane, every, every girl type of person. Um, and, and this was Nancy Davis, who later, you know, <laughs> became a lot larger than just a movie star. She was the first lady in the United States for eight years. And we know Yitzchok. I'm not sure if you're if you remember. <laughs> she wielded a lot of power in that White House, um, and Nancy Davis uh, wields a lot of power in this film as well. And she plays uh, she plays a very central part. It's a film that Dory Sherry um, ha- had been working on uh, as a way to really bring a religious message um, to a mass audience in a way that was entertaining and thoughtful and would have people. Talking about after they left the film, not in the religious message like Ben Hur, which is basically a message about the greatness of Christianity. Um, it's you know I I I feel so guilty watching Ben Hur um, because it really is so pointed towards a, a, a Christian viewpoint and how Jews, a lot of Jews are involved in making of it, but how Jews should be involved in. You know, in, in in the glory of what Christianity brought to the world, um, this film it, it clearly has a Christ, Christian perspective, but and it ends with a with a quote from the Gospel of John, uh, uh, but it begins interestingly with a quote from Shmuel from Sefer Shmuel about how it was a time when the word of God was yet was not known when people when prophets didn't arise, and the film is about. typical
1: the Hebrew is is, Yakar, it was it was expensive. It was valuable, you know, it was rare. It was was rare. Rare commodity.
0: Yes. Yes. There there were there weren't Navium everywhere. And and this film takes place in what later in Spielberg's world and other worlds became typical America. It's interesting because the 1950s um, Los Angeles was was coming into its own but maybe it's because of production costs that sherry wanted to keep down he filmed in los angeles in a los angeles like, like in the heart of the city which today would have been a suburb of la made in 1942 called joe smith All american which also had i don't think whitmore was in it and that's of course the the, the main character of this film of course is james whitmore who plays joe smith His wife, as I mentioned before, Nancy Reagan. uh, (laughs) she wasn't known if she was Reagan yet, but Nancy Davis. Um, And they have one son. Uh, The son is actually played by a a very um, (laughs) amazingly competent boy called Gary Gray. Um, I don't know how many films Gary made. but he was, he, I think he did a, I think he did a, a Yitzchak was saying that he was really uh, impressed by his acting here. Uh, and he was, he really wasn't an overcute Moppet. He really was seemingly a, a 12-year-old boy. At least that's what it seemed to me. And interestingly enough, this, they are expecting their second child. So here we have this nuclear family as it came to be known. And... The husband, played by James Whitmore, is works in an aircraft company, an aircraft, uh, an aviation company that produces airplanes. Now, of course, this was an industry that was booming uh, during World War II, and perhaps as World War II was over, uh, perhaps it was somewhat in somewhat a decline, or maybe they, maybe there was even a greater need to try to uh, still outpace what had been done. But he works in an air, in an aircraft factory, um, and he's frustrated in his job. He has a number of friends that he goes bowling with, perhaps plays poker with, but he's someone who's frustrated that he's not getting ahead. Part of the reason he's frustrated is because he has another child on the way. And the film, although I don't know if it uses the word pregnant or not, but <laughs> it's clear that she is, um, uh, they're expecting another child, That's very obvious in the very beginning. Um, and that's really, it really hovers over the whole film, the fact that there's going to be the birth of another child soon. And that way, again, it's sort of like, portends somewhat of a Christian Christian message. But all of that is giving Joe, played by James Whitmore, quite a bit of angst. And he takes it out in many small ways. On one hand, he's a loving father. He cares about his son. He cares about his wife. Uh, They are amorous even with each other up to a point. But he's frustrated. He's frustrated his job. He feels he hates his boss. Um, The son is picking up and had the movie been made 20 years later, uh, there would have been curse words that the boy would have said because he picked it up from his father. Again, the Hayes Code uh, didn't allow that. But uh, you almost get the sense that uh, that you know, that's what the idea was, that he was cursing out his 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 boss. And he's still upset, of course, that his son is using those type of words at home, words that he picks up from his father who, who brings his frustrations home. Um, and these frustrations aren't just at, at his job that he brings home, he, he, he's frustrated as he drives to work. Um, there's a number of very, they spoke to me quite a bit, um, and, and you Yitzhak as well, I know, are, are often in a rush to get someplace, um, and as is he. And he's rushing because he doesn't wanna be late because he's got a boss that's gonna be on his case. And he pulls out of his driveway um, with such intensity and no regard really of the other people because he he doesn't live in a cul-de-sac he lives on a street that is a thoroughfare that many people drive on so what was really incumbent upon a person who lives on such a street is to back out very very slowly and to and to wait for the for the for the uh traffic that is already in the lane uh to be clear and that's something he never does and the film actually has uh, a spot where he pulls out I guess that's probably one of the most exciting parts of the film in terms of action. You talk about action like car chases where there's almost a, a, an accident, and he doesn't take it to heart at all that this is happening. Um, he, he he doesn't try to change his aggressiveness because he's really upset. In fact, one of the things that comes out again I, I dwell upon this driving metaphor because America was really in love with the automobile, especially in California, where it's now become impossible to move even with the automobiles. But it's clear that you know he'd like to get a new fancier car. And his frustrations with the car are, are, are the starter doesn't work. There's a, a lot of his self-frustrations are taken out in the car. And the car is almost like a symbol of, of, of what he considers his own flaws um, as a person, how he's he feels he is good enough. He feels he should be gutting ahead and he's not. And you know, and because of that, he bristles at that. It bothers him, and he tells his friends at work how it bothers him that his son has to be so industrious today, has to get up early. Of industriousness, but it's also a sign that you came from a family that was not well off, a family that the kids had to work. And this is also something, although he doesn't have, a, he doesn't live in a hovel. He lives in a house that's pretty similar to the ones around him. He's quite frustrated about his life. This. American average Joe. Um, and then something happens. Um, the family gets together on uh, you know, on, on on I think it was a Tuesday night, I think it was the first night that it happened. And it's like you you brought this up before we started recording that for so many people who will watch this film, it will seem so strange that there was no real there wasn't a television four or five years later, there would be uh, explosion of televisions. I think you'd have 40 percent of American homes, or 50 percent of American homes, would have televisions within four or five years, which is an incredible, incredible number of how popular television was. But at this time in 1950, although there were uh, the DuMont, um, DuMont network, and other networks that that now are just part of <laughs> part of um, the curiosity of what television was, were really just startups some of them in LA, some of them in New York, but throughout the world, radio was still king. And and radio programs were something that um, the family listened to. Anyway, the conceit of the show, the movie is, and I should get to it already, I shouldn't bury the lead, is that on one Tuesday night, 8.30 Pacific time, and you can translate that to (laughs) what would be 11.30 in in the East Coast. Throughout the world, at the same time, the radio voice that came on, and and it was the voice that gave people a certain sense of calm, a certain sense of of something is happening, and the voice was clearly a male voice, and the male voice says, "This is God talking, and I want you to know that I want to connect to you, and I want
1: you to know that I'm here." Throughout the whole movie, you never hear, you never hear the voice. Right,
0: right, and that was part of. It was almost like a, a Judaic christian understanding. that You never show God's face, right? So it's almost like that, that's the way I understood it. You know, Dory Sherry, um, obviously, went to. You know, he had a, somewhat of a Jewish education. There's their Judaism and Christianity. That although there's many images of Jesus, uh, but even in Ben Hur, which extols Jesus, you never see Jesus's face. And I think part of this was. You never hear a voice. This was all part of the reference towards God. But you hear a record of what he said. Uh, other characters repeat what the message is. But the first message is just a message, I am, like the burning bush, that I'm here, that I exist. Um, at least the first message of Ekiyat or Ekiyat. And the response to the world at the time um, is, it's a hoax. And you, you he...
1: Wells didn't didn't intend to make a hoax when he did the War of the Worlds. That was just right. Right.
0: Orson Wells was trying to portray a very realistic uh, upgrade level of what the War of the Worlds would be, and, and he did it in a very inventive way. But you know,
1: I I uh... think it's interesting that that by that time already this was what like, twelve years after he did that that it already became like a shame that dollar became, that became that
0: became shorthand for a
1: hoax was yeah it? it's an orson wells right because my understanding is that that night you know now we're coming up to halloween was uh, you know because we have this mythology that everyone was listening to this and they all just happened to tune in in the middle of the show and they missed it and actually the uh the ratings show that that it was uh uh, Edgar Bergen was was the most popular show that night. Not that many people were listening to the Mercury Radio Theater that night, but it, right. twelve years later, it was already right. like
0: print, uh, as was
1: already,
0: as, uh, as 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 I once quoted Yitzchak in the famous um, uh, John Ford film, *Man*, *The Shot Liberty Valance*. When the legend is bigger than the truth, you print the legend. And you're right; that became this legend. Orson Welles, Oaks. but it's interesting that the that most of the people. Uh, thought it was a hoax or it's interesting when he goes to work the next day some people there's one guy there who thinks it's it's a way to to, to get refrigerators or something like Of americana at the time there was, there was a certain amount of cynicism amount that it's probably some sort of capitalistic thing that right and it's only as the, as the newspapers start in, and you don't really see the newspaper reporters but it's all the pov of the film is obviously this family but as people are talking uh, they're reading the paper and discovering that this wasn't just an isolated incident. It didn't just happen in Los Angeles.
1: Well, they also river. they they ask you know, what happened uh, on the on the other side of the Iron Curtain. So there is that.
0: Oh, you're you're right. There was oh there was almost a suggestion that this might be a, a, a communist plot. Yeah. To perhaps uh, pollute our minds with some crazy idea.
1: <laughs> you know that. That's... And that that's echoed in, a, in you know day the earth was still the next year, you know it's you know it's not you know you know where this is coming from, right? You know it's coming from them. It's coming from right, right.
0: And and that was the, again. So it's either you know a cynicism, but the, to accept that somehow God should take over, you know, the airwaves and communicate to humanity with the means that humans had created. Humans had created a means that could be used to have a worldwide message, the radio. The radio was a miracle compared to the way things had been a hundred years before that. Um, And and here you had a way that a voice could be transmitted and heard around the world almost instantaneously, almost at the same time. So that, that, that incredible miracle of technology that was so crucial in winning World War II The idea is that God decided that he's inserting his hand into that man made glove and using it to talk to human beings and send them messages. And the basic message of God is over uh, a couple of days is that not only does he exist, but that he feels that people need to work on themselves, that people are taking the planet and God for granted, and that. God feels that He had done miracles in the past. It comes from a Judaic Christian tradition that there had been miracles, miracles that were part of the Bible. There was never nobody feels the Bible wasn't true, <laughs> um, but that the miracles of today need to be miracles that are recognized. We say in rabbinic language that are malubash that they are as the Ramban. Uh, says consistently in his commentary on Homish, that that is part of one of our, our, our great purpose is to recognize that there is no difference between the miracle of the splitting of the sea or of the sun rising or of a human eyesight or the earth opening up and swallowing a band of, re- of rebels. It's all the will of God that keeps this planet going every second instantaneously in a way that creation is marvelous and bountiful. Despite the fact, again, that this, again, you realize the film was made, and it's set in the present day. It's set in the time of five years after Hiroshima, um, after the, the, the horrors of the concentration camps were known, the millions of, of people killed just in battle, and of course, the others that were gassed and, and, and shot. And God's message is the world is a world of beauty and goodness. And despite people are going to say that the world is a terrible place, that people could turn around and recognize the gifts that God had given them. And these are gifts that are important, gifts that can be seen if they open their eyes just to to look at the stars, to see the earth around them, to breathe. And then-
1: I mean, <laughs> It's like I, I, when I when I was a boker, I remember I, was, I, I went to the sheer buyer of a Victor Miller on, I saw on the tape. I, I asked him a question, and he noticed that I was like an angry young man. And he said, "He said, you know, from the that there were two Hasidim walking. And I think when the Chavetz says Hasidim, he's talking about um, he's talking about Sufi Muslims, Mister Summer mm-hmm. Yes. The one, the one sees uh, an the of a right." There's and he says more, how
0: disgusting it is. He
1: sees how um, well look how white its look, teeth.
0: Are look right. how white its teeth is. Yes. Yeah. yes, to be able to to be able to find, despite what had happened in the world, but to realize that the planet was still functioning, and that there was still greatness to be found, um, and you know, obviously uh, as the messages keep on coming, you know, changes start happening to this family, um, there is, uh, there's another woman who's part of the family, but not completely. I think it, Mary's mother died in childbirth. And this is something that Aunt Ethel knows about. And it's part of the reason as Mary is pregnant, she's worried that how she buried her sister and, um, and her mother. I think there's been, I think there's been a number of, of, of women in that family that have died. Ethel is sort of like uh, the symbol, I believe, of a woman whose sense of God is God, is a vengeful God who will who, who will bring death to the world. And that the way one protects himself is by closing themselves off and being sort of a, uh, you know, a, 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 a scolder and someone who's always correcting, uh, someone who is, as we say in Yiddish, consistently someone is always tense and nervous and that's part of the reason why you know uh, her, her her nephew through marriage can't stand it and he makes up lies and excuses to leave the house whenever she's there she represents a religiosity which is a smothering one which is a negative one something that he bristles against that he finds uh, almost a, a sense of neurosis um and it's clear later in the film that he's somewhat of a lapsed christian he hasn't been saying grace and he hasn't been going to church in a regular uh, on a regular basis as probably many many americans had stopped doing at that time um and uh you know the as, as it becomes clearer uh, in the film based on it it's 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 recurring every night that it's not orson welles it's not other uh, russians um they're also i think they start discovering that the it's simultaneous and that um on every station and they're also discovering that it's in every language i think there was one little news Clip. I think it was Chet Huntley, I read in the Wikipedia page on this, that Chet Huntley before, of course, he became one of the most well-known voices in America as a newscaster, uh, and then the late 50s and early 60s on the uh, the Huntley Brinkley News Hour. Uh, Chet Huntley is there reading a little snippet of news on, on the radio where supposedly the, the pilots of a plane that happened to have a Frenchman and an, and an Englishman or an American on the plane that each one heard it simultaneously in a different voice, and again, you know the comparisons to Maiman Har Sinai, the comparisons to Nabua, I mean all of this is is, is very to us it's very partial I mean you know we we have heard so many echoes of the same type of idea, but what what the film is very open about is is, is the resistance of so many to acknowledge God's existence. Um, and even those that do, like Aunt Ethel, you know, see it as, as portentous as something terrible. And God, in fact, in the film does something interesting. Like, uh, you know, he's a character in the film. He he sort of on one night he says, Do I have to show you that it's me? I'm going to actually bring terrible rains. Um, as if he's going to indicate that he's the same God of Genesis, the God of the God of Gracious, the God of the floods. Um, and 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 I think Yitzchok, you thought this was one of the most terror-filled moments in the film.
1: Right? I mean, that's what, you know Nancy, Nancy Davis she screams, and it's a it's a scream that's that that would be the envy of any scream queen of any you know <laughs> science fiction or horror movie. It, it's it's it, I think it's a it, it's a more blood-curdling scream than Faye Ray or mm-hmm. or any.
0: And 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 really, what is she scared of? She's scared that 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 God is going to take out his vengeance on the world, that there is a creator, the fear that there's something bigger and greater than all of us. Um, it's just rain. It's very heavy rain. But the fact that it was predicted and that it happened is the fear, right? It's not so much the, 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 the rainstorm is so incredible, but rather the fact that it, kind of, it came on the heels of the recording. And therefore what she's really scared about is that there is a god of such power, despite the fact that she has growing within her a uh, human being, right, which is one of the film really is very open about that one of the greatest miracles of all is the, is the fact that the species continues to live and exist, and that human beings are able within themselves to, 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 to imitate god in that way. Um, So you know, I think you're right about the Nancy Reagan character, the Nancy Davis character. She isn't the stock, you know, you know, Madonna-like mother who's just full of sweetness, who's just full of positivity. She has a, a, I wouldn't say she has an edge to her, but I I don't know if she's, you know, if she's, if she's so full of, 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 you know, uh, stoic nobility. I didn't get that sense about her.
1: these were very real
0: characters they were very real i would i would say there's a secondary interesting character it would be the actor uh who plays um uh, interesting one that dory sherry and the screenwriters came up with was the boss who in, in many scenes is painted just as a fuss budget who just tells them you know an honest day's work uh, for an honest dollar, for honest days' work, he's always coming in and, is, and, and making sure they're not late. Um, he happens to be a neighbor of Joe, of Joe Smith, but he doesn't show any friendliness. He doesn't try to uh, come over and, and 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 be any sort of nice guy to him. Uh, surprisingly, and this comes up later in the film, um, when Joe mentions to uh, his son Johnny. About delivering papers to Mr. Brandon, he says, Mr. Brandon's all right. <laughs> of course, uh, that's not Joe's opinion. And Mr. Brandon indeed seems to be someone who can't stand the fact that everybody's talking about what's going on with the God from the Bible talking. And as you pointed out in that conversation to me, it was strange that here's this man uh, quoting the P'sukim and Mishwe by Lake on the Moa Oxo that, you know, go learn from the ant how you have to be industrious.
1: Was people were much more biblically literate in that time. Even someone who had, had no connection to any religion, they, they all knew the Bible. They all probably read it. But,
0: but what's interesting is you get the sense that Brannon represents pure capitalism, uh, holding on for dear life. Um, and it's interesting, of course, that, that this goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago in the Rob Serling film, patterns, that Joe wants his job. Joe wants Brandon's job. <laughs> and he has no Rahmanas on Brandon. In many ways, he, he wishes Brandon would die. He wishes Brandon would just be out of his way. Right? The film is pretty open about that. And Brandon says that to him in an exchange. He says, I, when they're not at work, he says, I know what you want. You want me, you want me out? He says, I'm going to hold on to dear life for this job. So in many ways, you know, Brad, th- this dynamic between the two is, you know, the classic dynamic of of the younger person wanting to uproot the older people, and the older people, instead of, you know, just quietly letting the younger people, you know, take their place, they hold on uh, and 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 actually double down. In, in many ways, I, you know, you would think that he's sort of like a, Scro- a Scrooge character, uh, that God needs to somehow change. Uh, the film surprises you with another layer of his personality and you almost get and what really becomes revealed i think this is correct and maybe this is why you were so impressed with it it's is that can my upon him part of the reason why brandon uh is so abusive and abrasive and so non-friendly and and he and and, and joe says why can't you be friendly why can't you right And he says i don't to be friendly i just got to be here is because of the aggressive way that Joe treats him. In fact, Joe's treatment of all the people of an older generation is similar to what we call about the millennials today, right? Very dismissive, hoping for them to get out of the way. Aunt Ethel has nothing to teach him. Uh, Mr. Brannon has to get out of the way for him to sprout his wings. Maybe he had served in World War II, maybe not, but now is his time. And he wants to push that world to the side. And that world, whether it's Aunt Ethel or, or uh, Mr. Brannon, is pushing back. And, and here is where you have you know, humanity at odds with each other. Not like in the film you mentioned before, uh, the Day the Earth Still, where we're talking about you know, sending bombs to each other. We're talking about similar to you know, what's happening on the street, <laughs> where you have a quiet, uh, you know, somewhat like a suburban street. And and the type of fissures that have ar- ar- arisen between neighbors, um, and that's part of what God really wants to change. Um, God tells them that there's, He could really unleash these miracles. He doesn't want to scare the world with these miracles, and that's part of what what what, what Johnny and the others are struggling with. Why would God want to scare people? Right? You know, when when Whitmore uh, Joe doesn't believe it's God, he believes it's some sort of devious power that wants to just scare people and scare women and, and, and bring women into false labor, which happens in the film where she's, she goes into, she, she drops something and uh, she has to go to the hospital. Um, and, and the film really does something interesting. It has one of, uh, I, I think the doctor in the, the, and who sends him home is a favorite of yours. I didn't know about this guy, but he feels funny that she has to go in for false labor and they, they're coming back. But you know, of course, that the, you know, of course, the baby's going to come. <laughs> you realize the question is under what circumstances and, and what will happen. Um, and the, uh, you know, as we as the days continue, the messages from God become the miracle is the miracles that you have. And here's something which I thought might be Christian, but I think your soul, and others, I think, would sign off on it that there's, there can be the miracle of, of human interaction where you don't expect it, where you can use the gift of the ruach mamalala, the, the spirit of God within us that can connect to others through speech to be able to forge relationships, to be able to turn enemies into civil uh, neighbors, uh, the ability to, to make the world better through communication between each other, the, the, the ability that we have to to change each other by degrees by by bettering a family dynamic the, the the movie does something which I've never seen any film do call that a miracle and that's that's the miracles that human beings can do learning from God how they can um, how they can better the planet not not necessarily by 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 banning all fossil fuels or or Getting rid of atomic weapons, um, but rather by coming to understand the other person, seeing their perspective, um, and 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 looking at, your, at yourself in the mirror and recognizing your flaws vis-a-vis the other person. Um, didn't you find that uh, pretty outstanding, It's hard.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm saying it's it's very close to what we would you know what we would call a very muster perspective. Um, I, I've never referred seen to it as a nest, but it was almost saying that 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 mankind in this twentieth century that has brought out these scientific miracles, mankind now has to rise and really take those miracles further in terms of and again you know in terms of whether it's world peace or not, but even peace starting within the family. And I think part of of what happens is. Is that um, Whitmore doesn't recognize this, and and he's unwilling to accept it, and he's noticing that his son, um, although is, has a fear of what's going on, his son, because of his youth, because of he's still untainted by by so much of the pain and frustration, um, is really becoming distant from him over these days, uh, and. Um, he explodes at his aunt, uh, which causes his wife. Although he has been kind to her and 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 affectionate and brought her to the hospital, his wife, you know, it, it can't stand what he did. Um, uh, she screams again. I actually thought that second scream to me was was more blood curdling. I sort of related more to that second scream when she screams at Joe for manhandling uh, the aunt. Uh, and Joe hopes that when he wakes up the next morning, that with the beautiful morning uh, of that Saturday morning, that every all would be forgiven. But he gets the cold shoulder from his 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 wife, and he goes out. If you remember, uh, to go get some cigarettes, and he wanders into a bar because uh, I guess that would be the place that would be open. that would, would sell cigarettes from the cigarette machine. And there he sees his old buddy. Um, and I don't know if they were friends from the war, but seemingly this was someone he had had quite a good time with. This was a good time, Charlie. And although Joe seemingly had at once had a predilection for drink, clearly didn't want to drink. but he gets suckered into it, he gets brought into it, Um Part of it is because on the way to the bar, he had another negative reaction with Brannon and he sees his wife is not friendly with him. Um, he hates himself and doesn't understand why. And he, right. was, he was an angry drunk, but he, but he was angry at himself. Uh, and and, and it's, it was interesting that he'd gotten so low. Uh, and remember, a, a very, I would, again, I, I, I can't tell you, you know, on an objective level who's more attractive, but clearly, you know, he has his wife at home who's, I didn't wanna show, I guess, how large she was. She was a pretty, she she carried pretty small for someone who was close to having a baby. I don't know exactly why Nancy Davis couldn't appear more pregnant than she did. But the woman who shows up at the bar um, is somebody who uh, is definitely dressed in, in a more uh, glamorous way. And she sits down next to him uh, with his buddy so here, you know, the screenwriters have the temptation, right? It's 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 almost, you know, it's close to the end of the film, and you, you and here he is at the lowest spot, yet he resists the temptation.
1: He yeah. realizes that it doesn't not, it doesn't even it doesn't even strike him, right? Like it's 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 amazing how how strong you know, he 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 is is a happily married man right this, this
0: despite the fact that he engages in this self destructive behavior the essence of this person is someone who loves his wife dearly cares about his son um appreciates those things more than anything else uh and he actually tells his friend in this state of drunkenness how he never wants to see him again how how you know how terrible it is and how uh, you know and you know, he apologizes to to the girl, to the woman. He says, you know, I'm sorry I have to say this to you, but but I don't want to talk to you either. He's, he's chivalrous somewhat, despite the fact that she is clearly a woman of loose morals. Um, and as you're right, he stumbles home. And you think maybe, all right, maybe uh, things can get better. But although his wife somehow understands and in a way can can put it behind them, Johnny sees his father. You know, and then again, my my kids have seen me drunk on Purim, and I'm sure your kids have seen you, uh, booze it up a little bit. Uh, You know, but of course, in Purim we try to do it lavoides Hashem. But here you have a depressed, angry drunk who, who was coming home and on the cusp of change. And that's where his son sees him.
1: That that was part of it. He missed. He missed hearing the 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 voice of God that night, and it, it and it's it's kind of ambiguous whether or not he made it. You
0: newscasters tell us, and again, this is part of the um, the uh, the way the film has its way of using exposition by having listening to the radio newscasters telling us what's going on. Just you know, all old films make use, of that. even modern films have to do that. How else do you tell people what's happening? But yes, the churches are being full, the synagogues are being full. There, people are showing up everywhere. Um yeah, but it's possible. It sounds like he does not wake make it to church. Seems like he has a very bad hangover. Um and um what occurs is that uh after that Saturday or that Sunday, although his wife is ready to forgive, his son um, doesn't want son does not want uh, he resists his advances, he pretends he's asleep when he comes in the room, he doesn't want to see him. And you know, the sun disappears. The son doesn't come home. They can't find him on Sunday. They can't find him anywhere. Uh, and this is, of course, where um, sort of like the... If, if there's somewhat of a twist, it turns out that you know, after all these places, uh, the place where he was is by the man's... The enemy. <laughs> He's at the Brandon's house. And it turns out that... He, He's probably been in Brandon's house before, and Brandon, unlike uh, you know Joe, has a garage that isn't just a small place to put your car, but is actually large enough to have a shop in it where kids could do real solid type of model work and other types of things. Where which is what kids did uh, in those days, and that's what the boy was doing. Interesting that he finds Brandon, you know, a, a much more stable figure, someone that he can look up to. Someone, you know, despite the fact that he's, somebody, I don't think he was in church either that morning, but uh, Brannon somehow is more, as an uh, is more of an adult, and understands things and is able, I guess, because he's, because he's distant, he doesn't see Joey Johnny as a threat, is able to look at Johnny, which is again a paradox, considering the way Brannon fought tooth and nail with Joe, somehow. That third generation, the generation doesn't seem to be threatening. There was a connection between the grandparents and, I guess, the grandchildren, so to speak, uh, that could be made. Uh, you don't have that uh, intergenerational conflict. It skips a generation. And I guess that's the only way you know, I, can, I can understand it. Um, so, um, but I mean, again, part of the greatness of the film is that its characters are not one dimensional and it makes you think about all three of them. And and Brandon and Aunt Ethel, um, and the others. Um, uh, well, suffice to say that that is the great dramatic moments uh, where when he finds his son and he is able to apologize to his son, apologize to him. Um, you know, unlike you know Hugh Beaumont who with the Beaver, you know, with the father spouts such great wisdom. Um, you know, here's a father who who asks his son forgiveness Who really think the big Monday night uh, to be the night of somehow even a greater, but now the whole world finally believes because everyone knows it can't be anything except God. And they're waiting for God's message and the churches and synagogues, the mosques, everybody is waiting wherever their house of worship is, their homes. And of course, it's silent. That's the again to me you knew did you expect there to be another message it's like when you're watching it
1: no i think that was pretty obvious that that was right the build up indicated
0: i guess that's the one little cheap point is like you know the priests talk among themselves and they sort of figure out well of course it's the seventh day we know god rests on the seventh day um but i think it's it's, it's really more than that it's really the idea that okay now i've shown you now you know <laughs> you guys do it right um, you know, now it's the time for you to be God's partners. As a, well, again, and it was, it, you know, the, the film, I think, could have been cheap about this. The film could have been very Christian and could have had the first day being Monday. And then the seventh day would be Sunday. But they actually push it. Um, they push it in a way that the seventh day is, um, right, it, the, the first day is Tuesday. So the seventh day is Monday a very proud Jew till the end of his life, marrying a Jew, being buried as a Jew, a Jewish cemetery in Long Branch. Um, somebody who I think you, when you did some research on him today, you discovered he had been involved in a number of projects where Jews feature prominently uh, plays, uh, the Zadie and the Zulu, <laughs> um, which- um,
1: and, he, and he was a playwright as well as a producer. He was a person
0: uh, and seemingly a person of, of very good character. And I think, you know, he as a Jew did not want to make a film, uh, right, re- he recognizes Christian audience, but I think this was something specific that Monday, right, and of course, uh, you can imagine that the, the last shoe to drop, of course, is the baby. And, um, and I think the film really, you know, does a, a great job of bringing the father and son together at the hospital. In other words, normally you assume in those days that, you know, it, was, it wasn't a time of natural childbirth the fathers did spend their time in the waiting room, right? Waiting for the babies to be born, for someone to come in and tell them what had happened.
1: Facing up and down. Which didn't
0: happen in this film. He sort of was just like either sitting in in tents or or, or, or just wiped out. But here in the last scenes in the film, he's actually in the um, waiting room with his son because his son is snuck into the car and his son wants to be part of it. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't fear um, childbirth anymore. As much as he's heard stories about the potential of death occurring in childbirth, um, and, and, and he, he loves his mother so much, but he wants to be there. And it's sort of an act of an adult, uh, you know, coming into somewhat of an adult responsibility. As they both wait together, uh, you know, uh, giving each other support, waiting for the child to be born. And, of course, it's a girl. So, you know, you have the family, you know, put together. And, and again, that is, it, it, again, you can't get cornier than that in terms of being the miracle of birth, you know, the miracle of, of new life in the world. You know, this is sort of like the, you know, the the, the, the code of this of this film. So before it um, turns on its head expectations of, of God, uh, yeah. right? In other words, you know, God isn't just, you know, you know, this mean guy is going to get it or he's going to change. Um, he's not this guy you thought he was. Um, before we, we talk about Whitmore, I do also want to say um, Whitmore's aggressive driving, just to get back to that for a minute, gets him in trouble with the policeman. And I thought really, I don't know if the scene was somewhat comic, you've got to admit, when he's giving him his tickets. I don't know how you uh, enjoyed that or not. Um, the uh, The tickets for reckless driving uh, the tickets for leaving the the scene uh in a huff you know and as he writes those tickets out to him and you know and the film doesn't mind going showing you without any music just like what a traffic stop is like the frustrations of a traffic stop and getting his uh getting his registration out and showing it to the policeman the policeman writing it up him taking the uh the summons from the police and sticking it in his mouth, right? Because he's in a hurry still. He wants to go. He's not even going to put it in the glove compartment. Right? He's going to stick it in his mouth. Right. Right. Like, and to me, that's almost like an obscenity, right? I'll just stick it in my mouth. Right. And then he when he writes him another ticket, I guess, for 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 refusing, you know, for for another aggressive driving move, once again, you know, he said, like, let's bring it on. You know, why don't we just go for the you know, and 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 part of what the policeman tells him is that, you know, I, I'm not your enemy, but you have to realize that if you don't control yourself, you're gonna hurt someone. And and the policeman is 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 you know we so you know it's all about beating the cops, it's all about avoiding them. You know, and the policeman, you know, is 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 really doing his job. You know, he is he is trying, and again, they have to give out these punitive uh fines for people in order for the protection. And, and and clearly driving aggressively is a sign of, of of acute selfishness. Um, and that is something which you know surprises people when you tell them that and how selfish you become. Uh of course, the film can't help but have that same policeman be the one who accompanies him twice to the, to the hospital, I believe, right? The first of false labor, right? He stops them on the way on the false labor, too, remember. For a second, because I said he carried the film. The striking similarity to a younger Spencer Tracy is really something, right? It's almost like you know, Spence was getting a little bit long in the tooth, and here comes Whitmore really taking the same type of roles that Spencer Tracy would take. I don't know if Whitmore studied Spencer Tracy's mannerisms or not, but it was re- it's 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 quite eerie, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. The, here, here he was because. You know, in them you didn't you didn't see Spencer Tracy, but in this you saw Spencer Tracy.
0: Spencer Tracy was actually in a film called A Guy Named Joe, which is about an airman who dies, and you know his soul is still drifting around and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but again, in the forties, Tracy could still play an everyman. by By 1950, Tracy because of his ill health, because of his drinking and other things, you know, Tracy got old very, very quickly. Um, you know, and and he, he already was playing like, like you know, Bad Day and Bad Rock. You know, he plays, a, he doesn't play just an everyman. He's already a, a person of older authority and you're scared of him. Um, so I think, you know, Hollywood was looking for someone who wasn't a, didn't have matinee looks, uh, someone who you could relate to and someone who could, you know, who could be believable. As an everyman, uh, you know, I think Gary Cooper had uh, too much nobility. You know too much stoic power. Uh, we talked, of course, about Cary Grant and others. Who was Cary Grant is sort of like the uh, the the you know the, the, the ultra megawatt uh, every guy. Um, you know, you know this is you know today we talk about Jimmy. You talk about Jimmy Stewart. Uh, he, he doesn't. He has. He's in many ways. You know, he he lacks Tracy's charisma, but I think that's perfect here. You know, he doesn't have, you know, a Jimmy Stewart-like, um, uh, sort of, like, likability. I mean, you don't really like this guy, do you, right? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, you um, Whitmore's character. You're not really supposed to relate to him in a way that you're rooting for him.
1: I mean, um, you, re- you, you relate to him because he's, he's, he's normal. He's normal. Right. He, he,
0: he's not Jimmy Stewart. Uh, whether it's Jimmy Stewart being angry in uh, in his westerns that he was making at this time. He's
1: he's almost like an early Homer Simpson or Al Bundy, you know. Right. right. The the dysfunctional, real American father.
0: Whitmore, Let me start this again. James Whitmore had a, a, a wonderful theatrical career, which he took really across the world. As as a one man show, as playing Will Rogers. You know, Hal Holbrook, <laughs> I guess, was another sort of like uh, actor, sort of the, of that mold. Uh, you know, made a career out of playing Mark Twain. But uh, you know, Whitmore uh, again was, I guess, really became very much a uh, grew out of that Spencer Tracy mold, and you know, took on things that were a little more challenging. Um, and you, know, I, I, you wouldn't call him one of the great movie stars of Hollywood. But I think this was a film that probably, you know, probably couldn't have, been, couldn't have made it without him. I think he was, I think he is the irreplaceable piece of this film. Um, so before we close off tonight, let's talk about how, what film I think was spawned out of this film. And that I think is Oh God, right? It's, it, oh God is, it's not a remake, but it it has a lot of the same themes to it now. I don't know, I know Chava loves the film um, and, um, uh, here, I think the film is, is one of the few um, uh, films to star John Denver, uh, the, who, of course... Uh, well, he and,
1: also loves John Denver, so it's... Uh,
0: <laughs> right. Um, of course, George Burns in that film uh, represents God in a human form, unlike this film, which refuses to do such things as so
1: sacrilegious. Written, yeah, of course, it's much more of a, a, a goofy movie, so help me, me, and... Yes, yeah. yes, Right. Um,
0: but it has a lot of the, pretty much, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, the Larry Gelbart, who I think wrote Oh God, pretty much stole <laughs> I mean, a lot of Dory Sherry's um, asp- ideas in this film, which is God, you know, things that develop, people stop believing, I want people to know I'm there, I want people to be nicer to each other, right, it's, it, you, know, you know, do things to recognize, right, it, 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 it pretty much has, pretty much, it's God in the same message. But it's but oh God! Although it's funny, putting God in the form of an old man who can do anything, and using John Denver as a person who will come to believe, and also talking about similar like this film, um, a comment on mass media, which the film is. I, I think if you stack both of these films together, uh, I think that this is this uh, uh, the next voice you hear, is is clearly superior. In terms of how it gets you to think about God in your life and chuva whereas I don't think Oh God does. Now Chava might disagree. I think Chava should see both films, and and she should she should let us know. A little interesting footnote, which only is sort of a Kivalevichian in post films. Uh, Jeff Corey is the rabbi in uh, Oh God, where they have a convention of of rabbis coming together and. You know, starting to figure out, and what rabbis and priests and others trying to figure out what's happening. Uh, Jeff Corey is the rabbi, and in this film, Jeff Corey plays a buddy at the uh, at the plant who he goes out bowling with or hanging out with. So it's interesting that Corey was in the original and what I will call basically a remake of of that film. I I think it's a I'll say it better, Yitzchok. I don't believe the film could have been made. Uh, when O oh God was made, um, I think we talked about how um, you couldn't have such an overtly religious message um, at that time. Again, uh, you, know, you had films. That, and, and if you remember, in O oh God, uh, Burns as God references The Exorcist. Remember, he says you could believe <laughs> you could believe in, in in a girl being taken over by a devil, but you can't believe that there's actually God in the world. That's something that's that's so strange, and I think it's a sorry commentary about how jaundiced
1: the world became. Most profound parts of the movie was where, when he puts his foot onto the gas, or onto the, uh, the starter. The in other starter. words,
0: right when he when he when he when he puts his foot on the starter in a in a slow, in a slow fashion, in a in a more relaxed.
1: So he first fashion. he first asks, "Well, is this a miracle?" That's supernatural, and then you realize this, no. It's a nat- It's it's exactly what that Muslim part is. Like, that is the miracle that you're doing things that that by virtue of how you're handling it, this is this is going to be better. You know, this is mm-hmm. you're 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 making the miracle just by. I mean, it's almost like a, a somewhat of a Taoist, you know, type of a, or even like in, in the Hasidic as far I'm talking about bittol, like to be Mavatli yourself and. And, and then it, it, you get you get out of God's way, you know, type of thing. And
0: and 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 our, and this and in this way it really echoes a film that we highlighted a couple of months ago, Angels in the Outfield, where by Paul Douglas uh, becoming a better person, the team wins. When Paul Douglas is a, a bigger Balmidos, everybody changes. You don't really need the angels to do that. You don't need the, the powers of God to do that. Uh we in many ways Shoot ourselves in the foot, or we flood the carburetor with the way we drive, and the way we we we, we aggressively. And again, you're right. That definitely is all part of how the miracles are in the Dvaram Katana of how those alterations are in our behavior. 1950, the Tibet's approximately a little bit over 25 years uh, when uh, oh God appeared. Um, did we really have a uh, you know what sort of world was it? I mean, you have by the way, if you remember, um again, you know he you have him working in the store, you know Jerry works in the store, and you have um you know his boss who, who again, so there's there's a lot of that same dynamic there. you have uh you know you have his wife, Terry Garr, uh, who is sort of a similar type to Nancy Davis, a lot more comic chops than she does. But you know, you know, quite quite similar in, in, in that way, um, yeah. and uh, you yeah. know, of course, like I said, it, it, it's it it's 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 a lot more ribald, it's a lot more um, goes for the easy laugh, um, and of course, this film maybe I think part of it what again yes, it's it's Rahman is that. Sherry's dream didn't come true. Oh God, tried to revive some of that, but the world that I think, like I said, had become jaundiced by that time. Um, maybe it was post Watergate. There was many things, but there was clearly a lot of cynicism and the idea that God exists and that God cares and God loves. Um, as opposed in this film, it's almost like you know I'm not really around. Like if you remember, part of what what Burns says as God in Oh God is you know I don't take care of all the details. That's you guys. I don't take care of every little thing. You know, I basically put the basic thing together and you guys have to do the rest. That's not what this film is saying. God is really in charge of every little thought and everything that's going on. However, the freedom that he gives us is to actually join Him. Whereas I think in O God, again, you can go back to the screenplay and see. What Byrne says is, is that, yeah, I created this, but I'm not involved in all the details. I'm involved in everything. Certain things I sometimes pop in and decide to 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 push a button here or there, um, and you know, it's a much murkier um, vision, you know, in terms of what God really is. And I think this film, by not asking as many questions, and by not like like part of in, in, in Oh God, part of what what happens is is that you know the the John Denver character has all these points that he wants to try to figure out about what is, and, 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 and Burns has to answer them. And of course, Gelbart had to write those answers in a way that came up with some, that made some theological sense. I think this film doesn't ask those questions, stays away from some of those details, but ends up really with a more uh, impressive sense of God. And, 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 and some other things, I think Dory Sherry here is sort of ignoring uh, man's inhumanity to man and other things. Um, and he's really zeroing in on 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 the minutia of life and the glorious aspects that, that surround that minutia.
1: Yeah, I, um, after seeing this, there's there's a movie that I, I I mentioned to you that I haven't seen. I know it's available very easily oh. streaming. That has a very similar theme. It's called Red Planet Mars with with uh and it's not as it's known as being not as good of a movie as this and but it's a very similar story where there is a voice coming on the television and it's coming from mars but in the end it winds up that's the voice of god i i haven't seen it i've heard of it very strange type of a movie but it's it's uh there there
0: are certain the film today if this would be made would be made by a christian a film company like Sandra yeah. Van or something like that, you know, the people who made the why, The Witch of the Wardrobe. This film would be made totally and marketed uh for you know a Christian audience. And it, it's really telling that because of the touches that to take Jesus out of it, I think that makes it, I think it's palatable for people, even Torah to see this film and to ask, is there more is true of the man the more? It, would you call Joe about tshuva? Um, how does the Torah differ? Um, how similar are things? Um, why doesn't the Rebbe nishol show Nisim and as as So I think the film is really again, you know, we try not to be preachy in this uh, discussion between us. You know, it's we have smicha, but we don't really, you know, emphasize that we're rabbis. I, I think this film, uh, again, I would, I would, I would hope. That people who listen to our podcast will now use this to try to promote this film uh, in areas where it could be taught. Uh, last week, Neil talked about watching uh, in the presence of my enemies on, on Tisha B'Av. I, I think this would be a, a wonderful thing to show in modern school, or even in a in, in a real in a school of serious Benetoro Torah, to make them think. Right? You know, it, it, you can't say that it has like you know, supra, anything that's so unsneed that, you know, they have to, you know, maybe they can, you know, <laughs> I think it really is something that, um, in a way, um, it's something we can polish up here on the projectionist and, and hand it really, you know, as a present to you guys. So, run with it. <laughs> We've done the miracle of discovery and research. <laughs> now it's time for you, my my children. Go forth and spread the word with the next voices that you hear. All right, my friends, hopefully you'll hear both of our voices again next week. Watch out. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.